You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. feel like who art ed who art is mr wood art ed me <laughs> yeah. either way it's, it's ambiguous it works on so many levels i know that's a great start welcome to who arted where we explore visual arts in an audio medium i'm your host kyle wood and joining me today once again i am dragging out my good friend jeff arndt <laughs> thanks for coming out thanks for having me again always appreciate it and uh love being on on the show so today we're going to be talking about Piet Mondrian. Uh, we're going to be talking about composition with red, blue, and yellow from 1930. Um, if you don't want to Google it, you can listen on Amazon Music, Spotify, or another platform that supports episode-specific cover art. I've got it in the cover art for this episode. Um, but Mondrian, I, I don't know about you, but like... When I was growing up, my teacher just said, like, Mondrian, red, yellow, and blue uh, squares and rectangles. Now make some red, yellow, and blue squares and rectangles. It was absolutely the the first project that comes to mind when you're learning the primary colors. And your, your teacher's like, here's an artist that uses primary colors. Let's do something with it. <laughs> yeah. Primary colors. Squares and rectangles, let's call it a day. And I just remember being like, why is this such a big deal? You know? It's probably the number one artist that when I'm in a museum with somebody who maybe isn't as exposed to, to different visual arts that walks up to an artwork and says, well, why is this here? I can do this one. <laughs> and I mean, there, there is a point to that. I mean, um, in the museum, we just found out recently that a Mondrian was hanging upside down for 75 years. I saw that and I <laughs> probably laughed for a good five minutes. I mean, it's just hysterical when you put that together and then different people's thoughts on the work and everything that goes behind it. Well, I think what's, what's really funny about that is, um, when they discovered that, they're like, yep, it's upside down. We're not going to change it. It just, this is, that's what it is now. The, <laughs> that's the part of the artwork now. The public has come to learn and accept it and love it. 
<laughs> well, I, I guess the the real reason is because it was like an unfinished work. So like the tape was still on it and the adhesives were just like barely hanging on as it is. And they're like, well, if we take it out of the case and flip it right side up, gravity's pulling it in another direction it's going to fall apart so they're just like that's just part of the work's story now <laughs> it's a good one though it's a quite a quite a backstory to it it is but like you say i mean it's one of those things that people start to look at and it's like well what is so special about this if even the experts can't tell which way it's supposed to hang you know, I mean, it's not exactly, it's not like there's confusion about the Mona Lisa, like which way is she supposed to be hanging up, you know? No, but I think that's what kind of gets, and I know you'll get more in depth with this in our, in our discussion today, but I think that's kind of one of the interesting parts about it and gives it such a, an interesting history too, is the ideas that come along with it and the fact that it's so unique in and of itself that nobody had really done anything quite like it before. Yeah. And I, I think spoiler alert, there's more to it than the primary colors, even though like in my education in like high school, I was just told squares and rectangles, primary colors. And then I'm a little bit salty about this because this is the, the one where I was doing a project and I vividly remember my my teacher saying, like, this is why you will always be a failure in the arts. Like, if you can't even use a ruler right to make <laughs> squares and rectangles and the primary colors. Um, so I'm doing this one for spite. Okay. Good. Hey, if you're not doing it for spite, really, what are you doing it for then? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but let's get into Mondrian here. So he was the second of five kids. He grew up in like an artistic family. Um, his father was a headmaster at the local school, but like loved the arts. And his uncle, um, Franz Mondrian, was an accomplished artist. And so like his father taught him how to draw, his uncle was teaching him how to paint, and in 1892, Mondrian enrolled in the Royal Academy of Arts in Amsterdam. It's a fairly traditional education focused a lot on observational drawing, copying artists' work, the old masters, all of that sort of stuff. So he's he's seeing like the the traditional Dutch painters and I mean, this is one of those things that I think a lot of people don't realize. Like, he was really, really skilled as a draftsman. I mean, if you look back at some of his drawings of flowers and stuff like that, um, really technically impressive stuff. But that's the forgettable stuff from his career. Like, early on, he's making these scientific drawings. He's giving lessons. He's making copies of works from museums. All the stuff that just, like, it pays the bills. It wasn't what he found intellectually satisfying, but he is he's finding an audience for his work um, and his copies of other people's work. I find that to be such an interesting part of so many artist careers and lives and they start off with with such a traditional background and you don't necessarily think about that because you're seeing a different point in their career that's more publicized and so you maybe a lot of people have this idea that 
certain artists don't have a, a specific skill set because of what you're seeing them produce and what's gained notoriety. And this is a pretty cool, ex <clears throat> cool example of that. Yeah, I mean, he he really was doing a lot of a lot of different stuff. He was dabbling in different areas. I mean, today we know him for his big innovation in exploration of compositions with the squares and rectangles and all of that sort of stuff. But before that, he was dabbling in a bunch of different things, trying out different styles and figuring out what worked. And I think that's a natural part of the artist's progression and also doing stuff, commissioned work that pays the bills throughout his career. Um, especially in the earlier phases of it, while he's dabbling in these more experimental things, you know, finding out about like the, at the, the time, the avant-garde first, he's like experimenting with the impressionist style. He's influenced by Van Gogh and Surratt. Like, so like 1905, he starts doing like the dabs of colors and stuff while he's doing that. He's also making, these paintings and drawings of flowers and other more traditional stuff just to pay the bills because a lot of people forget that art is a job it's a fun job but it's a job and you have to know what's going to be marketable and find stuff that people will actually want to buy not just the stuff that you want to make it's very rare that someone is fortunate enough that doing just the things that they enjoy is also commercially viable. Yeah, that's such an important point. And I think it's lost on a lot of, on a lot of people that you have to make ends meet. Yeah. And so he's doing that kind of stuff. Like I said, in the very early 1900s, he's looking at the impressionists and post impressionists and he's starting to do stuff. I, one of the things I always see from that time period is a painting of a tree, you know, it's got like that vivid blue background and all of that. Um, and, and then he sees the, um, he sees like Cezanne's paintings in 1909 and, that's kind of a game changer for him. This idea of translating reality into paintings that emphasize the artificial nature and the elements of art inside of the painting. Like that was something that was a big sort of aha moment for, for Mondrian. And I think along with that, it's worth knowing kind of who he was as a person outside of his art studio um, like he was a theorist. He was interested in the Theosophical Society. Are, are you familiar with the Theosophical Society, the spiritualist movement, that kind of stuff happening in that time? No, I'm not. Okay, so the spiritualist movement, I think of it in like the late 19th century. People were just like, their minds were blown by all the stuff that was happening and changing in society. And people start to look beyond, uh, like, I think a lot of times people sort of take comfort in those old ideas of spiritualism at a time when the world seems to be turbulent. You know, I mean, the, the industrial revolution is happening. Think about like someone who grew up in that time period, all of a sudden you can capture images of people with photographs and there are ghost images like the Mulmer kind of um, double exposure frauds happening and stuff like that. It's just like, there's so much stuff that is 
blowing people's minds about the way that society is changing. And a lot of people turn towards religion and looking at like, what are these deeper rooted ideas about spirituality? And the Theosophical Society was really interesting in that they were looking at like, well, what do all these different world religions say? And what are some of the root principles and ideas and philosophies? And it was intended to be very open to all comers and all people with an open mind, seeking knowledge, seeking wisdom. And they would get together and talk about and debate different ideas. And Mondrian was a part of that. Like He was a very intellectually curious and intellectually driven guy. And I think that makes sense in looking at and understanding his work that he would eventually become really well known for, you know? Yeah. When you get into that and then you start to think back to the beginnings of doing things like, you know, technical drawings, scientific drawings, like that sort of progression and change in ideas, not necessarily change, but development of ideas yeah. and then the continual exploration of knowledge is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I think what really what really made a difference in my understanding and appreciation of Mondrian was when I started to think of him through almost a scientific lens and think of his work as a series of experiments to figure out what art is all about. So 1912, he moves to Paris. He starts looking at what's big on the scene there. And he's drawn to the analytical cubist style. Um, you know, Picasso and Brock are doing those things, playing around, simplifying shapes and showing different views of the subject on one composition. And Mondrian was really drawn to that style. Although, his work was slightly different because he really wanted to emphasize the flatness of the painting surface. Whereas in a lot of analytical cubist stuff, you would see a lot more of the shadings and gradations that give it just a little hint at the depth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think that if, if you're coming from a scientific background, I can see where the draw would be in cubism, but then I can also see how, his style at the time would vary from those other artists. Yeah, because like I said, he was influenced by Cezanne. And, you know, when I think of Cezanne, I'm thinking of the way that he sort of showed almost just slightly off perspectives of things in the still life. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like you're looking kind of down at one object and eye level with another. But it 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 was all done to emphasize like we're not looking at a still life. We're looking at Cezanne's painting of a still life. It's making us consciously aware of the fact that this is sort of a filtered artist's lens and not the real deal. That's pretty radical, that yeah. concept. I mean, not, not done before, or to the masses at least. Yeah, and I mean, that's why, that's why that kind of stuff was blowing artists' minds when Cezanne was doing it and Picasso's picking up on those kinds of things and Mondrian was too. And that's why Mondrian is emphasizing the flatness as he's adopting some of these cubist sort of stylistic elements. 
And then during that period, Mondrian starts working with um, the artist and architect, and I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, Theo van Dosberg. Sounds good enough. But um, they founded the journal Distill, Distill, mm -hmm. uh, Dutch for the style, which it feels a bit presumptuous to me. You know, it's like, this is the style, right? Yeah, it has a bit of an air of itself. And yeah, you're you're it, right? Or you're calling yourself it. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, he wasn't exactly wrong. It was pretty influential, but uh I wonder if part of that too is just to from a publicity standpoint to get people talking. I I th I think one thing we know is you got to hype your own brand because if you're not, no one else will. Yeah, I want to take a moment to uh talk to our sponsor Kyle Wood podcast and <laughs> say what a what a great job they're doing. Yeah, I am doing a pretty phenomenal podcast. This is the art history podcast. <laughs> That's why I'm uh, here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this so distill is this movement among Dutch artists, architects, designers and they're getting at this idea of just total abstraction. Um, Picasso famously said, like, there is no abstract art. You must always start with something and then remove all traces of reality. And Mondrian, I think, was kind of thinking, well, maybe there is this pure abstraction, what, what today people might call um, non-objective design, where it's just about the colors, the shapes, the lines, the proportions, those elements of design, Right. And Mondrian called his style neoplasticism. Uh, neo means new. And when we talk about plasticity, we're talking about like just the, the way that things can be shaped and molded, right? So he's talking about a new way of shaping and molding things. And I think that that's going back to some of the things we were discussing at the start. One of the reasons why educators maybe even with a lot of younger students use his work as a starting point because it is in some sense a relatively easy way to explain pure abstraction to somebody that's never been exposed to it or, or really know what it even is. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It's, it's, a, it's also an easy touchstone, like you said, to talk about the primary colors um, or the traditional primary colors and get kids to understand those ideas. It's shapes that they can see and understand and they can replicate themselves. Um, educator, you know, hat going on here. I think one of the most important things to talk about when I talk about Mondrian, I always talk about how we're using these basic elements to explore the bigger ideas of the principles of design, how we can explore like proportion to lay out a composition and make it look good, even with the most basic and boring elements of simple shapes and just primary colors. Yeah. But that that's again, my sort of personal bias and my, my uh, stylistic, um, way of teaching and what I would emphasize in my classroom. Uh, just to sort of wrap up a little bit about Mondrian, his bio, 
So he left um, He left Europe just before World War II started. He came to New York. He became friends with Peggy Guggenheim. She supported him, showed his work in Art of the Century Gallery. And then aside from obvious influences, minimalism and all of that, his work went on to influence the Bauhaus uh, fashion designers, Yves Saint Laurent, came up with like a famous dress in like the 1960s or the design was color blocked and it was it was actually referred to as Mondrian and it's this band uh, like it's just like this band of color going down and and the blocks of the primary colors and all of that I was thinking of that and I was trying to put together a list in my mind of of artists who have directly had so many different impacts in fashion and and other ways thinking about his prints in the example that you just gave. And I mean, he's, he has to be up there with top five. I, I mean, mean it, it's one of those things where it's, it's so simple. It's easy to forget how kind of revolutionary it was. And his work, you see it playing out across not just future generations of painters and interior designers and fashion designers. We see like the, the band, the white stripes had the still album in well, like 2000. Like um, I think of painters like um, Sarah Morris, if you've seen her abstractions, very flat and geometric and you know, like there's so much that we see echoes of Mondrian a hundred years later. Funny about you know. the white stripes. That's how I even knew what the style was, was because of that album led me to investigate that. Just as an aside, isn't it funny how, okay, so growing up, I always thought that like, cause I was I, no, no surprise to longtime listeners. I was big into like the punk scene and stuff like that. A huge blink fan and, um, you know, all of that. Growing up, I always thought like these musicians and artists were just like the quote unquote cool kid who's like too cool for school and like, you know, so rebellious and and just does their own thing and not going to listen to anyone. And then it's like you start to grow up and it's like, man, all of these people who really made it were kind of nerds, right? <laughs> like they were they were these people who were always learning and taking in all these different various aspects of culture. They are reading like I I'm I remember, you know, like I'm I'm I would be wearing like Macbeth shoes and like Atticus clothes, like all of these literary references being dropped. And yes, they're they're kind of well known and obvious stuff. But like all of the the people that like really made it as producers of culture we're also avid consumers, readers. Like there are the occasional like one-hit wonders who stumbled onto something, but the people that really had a lasting impact tended to be these people who who really learned a lot and would drop references that yeah, occasionally then I would start to look up like what was that Simpson joke all about? But I think that's why it, it has such a huge impact is because they're consumers of knowledge and consumers of information and they're in, in touch with so much that's happening and has happened that they can then put that into themselves 
and it makes it more accessible and interesting to others. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the whole Bob Dylan success story, yeah. right? Just consuming, 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 and then putting that into, into his own artwork that then gets pushed out to the masses in different ways. And now, after the break, we're going to talk about Mondrian and what he consumed and the product that he eventually pushed out to the masses. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. And we're back now talking about Mondrian, and we've got a lovely work here. Composition with uh, red, blue, and yellow. This is a painting, Oil on Canvas, 1930. What are you seeing? What's jumping out to you about this? Um, How striking it is immediately. It's, It's so rigid, and it just catches you immediately when you look at it. Yeah, it does seem incredibly rigid. I mean, as I'm looking at this, it is squares and rectangles, the traditional primary colors. We see a giant red square occupying, what do you think, like 50% of the canvas? Oh, at least. And then there's clearly um, heavy black outlines around that. We've got in the opposite corner, we have a, a smaller blue rectangle and then just a really small yellow rectangle and the yellow one is occupying i don't know maybe five percent of the canvas it's very very small i also at first glance and this is just seeing some other pieces too it's slightly intimidating to me and it's hard for me to exactly put my finger on why and it, it might be that rigidness that we're talking about or that just intense vertical and horizontal direction, but it is so unique and, and stands out in that sense, especially when you put it into a gallery perspective and you happen to, to kind of meet it there. And it's just gives you that. Wow. What, what do we have going on here? I think what's interesting is that it feels so it feels like it would be a monumental work when I see it in pictures, but it's only 18 inches by 18 inches. So it's it's relatively small, you know, I mean, a foot and a half squared. But yeah, there is something, there's something that feels intimidating, I think, because it is so hard edged. 
Um, and and also like it, it's simple, but it would be difficult to render because in rendering this, it has to be flawless, right? Like that red has to be a pure flat red. If you see the brush strokes, it kind of ruins it, right? If you see that variation in in the hue. So like he's having to do layer upon layer to get it to that consistent flat red and blue and yellow. And he's got to tape it off and make sure that it's nice, neat, precise, clean lines and hard edges on all of that. And there is something that seems very brutal and cold and mechanical about stuff that is the hard-edged, flat, sort of post-painterly abstraction. And I go back to even the whole scientific idea where everything is so precise and you really don't have room for, I don't want to say margin of error, but the idea that each of the, the different parts of the painting does have to have a, a sense of perfection for it to work. Otherwise it doesn't. Yeah. And, and I think in some ways the small scale of this makes it feel like it's one of numerous studies that he's doing, right? Like it, it feels like it's one data point to me as I think of Mondrian and I think of the squares and rectangles that he was known for. I think of it as not like, a finished work and an ultimate result. I think of him as playing around with those elements, changing the size of the squares and rectangles, changing their placement, changing the frequency of them in order to figure out what composition is all about in an idea, like in an age where you can have the camera snap a photo of a person, place, and thing, when we're getting into that fourth category of abstraction and we're removing those those uh, recognizable subjects from the real world, then what makes something look good? You know, how much visual weight does each element have? How do you distribute those elements around the composition? And I see his body of work as a series of experiments to figure out the proportion and the distribution and the balance and all of that sort of stuff. Um, like, how do the principles of design play out in a non-objective work? And it's a really interesting progression from influences like cubism because it really does take a lot of those principles and ideas and explores them in a completely new and different direction. And that makes the work of art really interesting too, if you're coming from it from that perspective. Yeah. I wondered, I wonder before this work of art, how much or how frequent was it to use or even revolutionary was it to use things like adhesive tapes to mask and to block out parts of a painting for this kind of of painting well i mean tapes actually that was something that was that like masking tape i believe came about because of um auto manufacturing in the early 20th century because of um the need to be able to quickly and easily get the two-tone paint jobs and stuff like that that were all the rage like people were experimenting with different ways of masking things off i mean the concept of masking something off wasn't 
new and different and revolutionary, but uh, masking tapes, I believe, were developed in the early 20th century. So, I mean, I think that was probably a somewhat new material and method to be working with as well. I think too then, so you you have this. Because before it was like that, that like bar, you know what I'm saying? Like that you rest, you know. But think of how many artists are using these methods today to produce these, um, you know, your, your TikTok video or whatever, where they're creating these abstract paintings where they mask off and then, you know, drip your paint can on it or whatever it is, gradient paintings. And you think, well, of, and you think of that progression from something like this and then how that in a sense influences these these individuals today well i think it's it's so funny because he studied and worked so hard his whole life to make this kind of garbage that anyone could do (laughs) (laughs) i mean i respect that though i i do i really do it's one of those things where the greats make it seem effortless you know um it's it's not as easy as it looks even with tape to to get a clean line like i i can't tell you how many times i have and i've personally experienced it and seen it happen where it's like the the paint gets under the tape and stuff like like it always happens um to people who are not taking the the time and precautions to do it the right way um for those who don't know the the trick to make sure that you don't get paint going under the tape as you're painting it. Let's say you've got a white canvas. You put your lines of tape down. You paint it white, so anything that gets under the tape is going to be white paint that seals the edges of the tape. And then you put your layers of color down, peel it off, and you'll have nice clean lines. Um, just as, a quick, as the art teacher, I can't resist talking about that. Quick so. sidebar: You're the smartest person I know. <laughs> I don't think that is true at all, but you're very kind. Um, But like this work, like I said, I feel like this individual painting is fine. It's a visually pleasing composition in some ways. And, and yes, I see, I see where the, the hard edged can make it seem a little bit cold and sterile. I don't have that connection to it. And I think it's probably because I like I had Mondrian bed sheets growing up. Um, you know, like I, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. You grew up in the same time period I did. And I, you know, the eighties, like bed sheets that had the Mondrian design. I did, except my bed sheets were, um, He-Man ones. So I wasn't quite into <laughs> it as much as you were. So I have the more the more uh, cold sense when I when I view it, but I do know what you're talking about. Um, but I, I I think it's interesting. Also, I reading about him. Um, there's this common idea that Mondrian was just very cold and methodical, and in some ways he was in his studio practice. But outside of that. From what I've read, biographers have said that he was actually like quite charming. Like he was um, always elegantly dressed. He was an avid dancer, and he 
he loved things like the Foxtrot and the Charleston. And one of his other famous works was called Broadway Boogie Woogie, yeah. which, you know, he was focusing on the rhythms in the visual design playing out with the playing out with the um the the colors and stuff like that but he got rid of the black outlines for that and the the repetition of the the primary colors in there and the way that sometimes they're they're almost like layered on top of each other or surrounding each other it creates this visual rhythm it's one of the best pieces i have seen for describing like rhythm as a an element of visual art and i think that's again part of this broader body of work where he's doing all of these paintings using the same elements but rearranging them so that we can get a, a stronger sense of how the principles of design play out when we look at all of these different data points when we look at it as a broader collection and broadway is a painting that i personally love and it's a painting on the Mondrian scale that I can connect to a lot easier or have an easier time connecting to than this particular work of art. And I think it's because I can see some of those more, some of the connections a lot easier, like rhythm that you just discussed and, and connections to music and, and different social aspects. Yeah, I would agree. I think it is. I mean, it's one when I'm putting together the collection to show my students and when I put together a collection to um, to show Mondrian's work on like Instagram, I include Broadway Boogie Woogie because, again, I think looking at one of these paintings in isolation, you don't quite get it. You know, I think his work is a body of work that you need to see played out across a couple of, you, you need to see the arrangement of these elements in different ways. And also see all those different studies. I mean, that, that creates a different level of appreciation and understanding how, you know, this isn't a one, a one shot deal where he went and was like, all right, I'm going to take a canvas, mask it off of some tape and slap this together. And here we go. History is made. And there's so much background in different studies and progressions that go along with it. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Lou? Is this something to look at? The lab, the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Lou? British for bathroom. Yeah, there's the a poop joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. For me, this one is even though it's not my top list of, of favorite works of art. Um, it's one for the Louvre. I think it's a pretty revolutionary piece and it has so, so much going on with his backstory and techniques and skills that really you hadn't seen before, but you see having a lasting impact on society to this day. Yeah, I, I generally agree, although I think I still end up putting this in the lab just because as we've talked about throughout this whole episode... I think of his work and his process through almost a scientific lens. I see this as a series of experiments to try to figure out what painting and what composition are really all about. Um, I see this as like one data point in a broader experiment to figure out how these different elements can play out to make something that is visually pleasing. 
And I think when I look at his body of work, I learn a lot about composition and distribution of the elements. When I look at one piece in isolation, when I look at at this piece, I understand its historical significance. I understand its lasting impacts. I, I, I get bored with it. A little bit, just looking at like squares and rectangles, primary colors. Yeah. I also, the sort of brat in me wants to point out like the true subtractive primaries would be cyan, magenta, and yellow, not red, yellow, blue. Um, <laughs> you know, you spend so many years on the primary colors, you'd think you'd get the primary <laughs> colors right. Give them a break. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I I do think it is good work. I, I I think it's just one that I learn from. It's more of an intellectual than an aesthetic appreciation that I have for it. Yeah, that's the same for me as well too. I have a harder time connecting it on the on this on the purely aesthetic joy of it yeah. more so than I do of just the process and understand the history behind it. Yeah, that to me is fascinating and interesting. But I do want to say um, thank you once again for taking time on a Saturday to come talk to me about, uh, you know, at first glance, one of the most boring artists of history. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't wait to get up and talk about squares and rectangles. (laughs) I I do think it is it, it is surprisingly fascinating. When you start to look at, when you start to look at and understand and unpack the ideas behind it, um, and I, I just would encourage art teachers out there, if you're listening, talk about more than just primary colors and squares and rectangles. There is a lot more to so talk. Much more. Yeah, there is. But how many people listening and maybe discovering your podcast for the first time too, though, know this work of art? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people know it before they even know who he is or who he was, you know, you know, it from, you know, it from all sorts of design references before you know his name. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.